What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its Opry ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Trade Coffee. Right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order, plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash missionlog. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. Get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash missionlog and let Trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash missionlog for $30 off. This episode is also sponsored by Collide. Got Slack? Concerned about security for your employees? Get Collide. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices for free for 14 days. No credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash mission log. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 442, Eye of the Needle. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we send a message through the wormhole and hope that someone, somewhere, on the other side is there to hear it. This week, Eye of the Needle, the one where the Voyager crew comes face-to-face with a Romulan who can help them out. Or not. Romulans are hard to read like that. I'll come right back with trivia as soon as Norm tells you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now let's get back to the journey with John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, trivia for Eye of the Needle. We have a story by Hillary J. Bader, and there's a name that I hope is familiar, since we have now covered all the Trek stories to which she is credited. Hillary, you may remember, started as an intern on TNG and is probably best known for her contributions as a writer on a number of animated projects in the DC universe. She did have a number of other TV credits, though, and her first Trek writing credit was in TNG's fourth season with The Loss. She pitched this story early in Voyager's development. Hillary passed away in 2002. We have a teleplay by Bill Dial and Jerry Taylor. Naturally, we see Jerry's name show up a lot as a driving force behind Voyager, whether she takes an on-screen writing credit or not. Bill had a number of writer-producer credits throughout the 80s and 90s, in addition to the occasional acting gig. He had two other Trek writing credits, both of which we have covered, DS9's Tribunal and The Alternate. 
we lost Bill in 2008. And as God is my witness, he will forever be known in TV history as the writer of the WKRP episode, Turkey's Away. Ah, oh, poor big guy. He never knew what he was getting into. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, speaking of writing, we mentioned a few episodes ago that Voyager switched from a five-act to a four-act format. And this was officially the first script that was reformatted. So, Jerry Taylor, Lolita Fajo, and Janet Nemechek, name check, Dr. Trek, Nemechek, all set to work piecing it together, rewriting, reformatting everything that they had to. On Mission Log, we've already made that switch because any of the episodes prior to this one that you're watching have already been edited to fit that format. The change actually had a positive effect on the budget for this episode. There had been planned a scene on the holodeck in a novel for Janeway, and that meant an extra set to be constructed, which would have put the show into overtime. Now they could save that expense for a future episode. This one was directed by Wienrich Kolbe. Here's Rick again. We're just six episodes in, seven if you count Caretaker as two parts, and he has directed three of them. How about our cast spotlight this week on Ethan Phillips as Neelix? Ironically, Neelix isn't on screen in this episode, but we should give the actor behind the character his due. Born in New York, Ethan occasionally credited as Johnny, got his degrees in literature and fine arts, but then ended up very early on with some plum acting roles, like appearing in Milos Forman's Ragtime in 1981, while also appearing as a regular on Benson alongside René Aubergenois. In fact, Ethan was so new to acting that he credited Benson star Robert Guillaume as the one who helped mentor him into a professional. He carried on with numerous TV guest appearances and even played a Ferengi on TNG's third season episode, Menage a Troy. Even after starting Voyager, he turned up without all the alien makeup for an uncredited role as the holodeck maitre d' in Star Trek First Contact. Even outside of Star Trek, numerous genre roles followed, and recently you may have caught him on the HBO sci-fi comedy Avenue 5. Oh, by the way, uh, Norman and interested listeners, there's a bit of trivia that I didn't get in here. Uh, if you're ever in New York and you go to Frankie and Johnny's Steakhouse, mm-hmm. that was started by Johnny Phillips's, well, Ethan Phillips's father. So uh, there you go. There's uh, connecting food to our story today. <laughs> and let's look at our guest cast. We briefly meet another Voyager crew member in the sick bay. His name is Baxter, played by Tom Virtue. He got his start in the early 80s on TV and to this day keeps working, in fact, with well over 200 credits to his name. This is the first of two appearances as Baxter, and then he'll be back for two more episodes of Voyager in a different role. Then as Romulan Telek Rumor, the venerable Star Trek actor Von Armstrong, who we have mentioned on the podcast before, going way back to his first appearance on TNG as a Klingon in Heart of Glory, then on through his DS9 appearances. Of course, there is so much more of Vaughn to come, just maybe not much more of Telek Rumor. Wormhole ahead. Wormhole ahead. I swear, if Paris hits this thing and tears up the shock absorbers, I'm going on autopilot strike for a month. Prologue. Everyone aboard Voyager, especially on the bridge, is all abuzz about Harry Kim's most recent discovery, subspace emissions suggesting that a nearby wormhole 
may be their very first real possibility to get Voyager and her crew back home to the Alpha Quadrant. Captain Janeway believes Ensign Kim's discovery is in fact important enough to risk changing their present course, even if it causes a delay in their journey. And Harry's buddy Tom wants it to go on record that if the wormhole works, it should be named the Harry Kim wormhole. Aw, thanks, Tom. Act 1. As Voyager arrives at the wormhole's coordinates, Harry barely sees it, even under extreme magnification. That's because the wormhole's aperture is about 30 centimeters, or just under 12 inches in diameter. Captain Janeway theorizes that it's been decaying for centuries. Tuvok suggests launching a microprobe into the wormhole, which may provide more specific information. However, the probe gets stuck, but is soon after scanned by an unknown source on the other side of the wormhole. Meanwhile, in sickbay, the doctor is quizzing Kess while examining a patient, a very rude and dismissive Lieutenant Baxter, who doesn't think a hologram makes for a competent onboard physician. Kess is put off by such behavior, however puts that all aside, as she is ready to absorb more medical training. Later in the conference room, Bellana informs the bridge crew that the microprobe will be crushed by the collapsing wormhole in 72 hours. Harry believes that they still have time to use a subspace carrier wave to communicate to whoever may be listening on the other side. As Harry and Bellana work together on boosting the microprobe as a signal generator, they both reveal their longing to return home. Although Harry has loved ones to return to, but Bellana, not so much. Their efforts are a success as Tuvok reports that a signal is coming through the same carrier wave on the same amplitude and from the Alpha Quadrant. Act 2. Kess meets with Captain Janeway in her ready room and confesses to the captain that she is disturbed and disappointed by how the crew treats the emergency medical hologram. Captain Janeway pushes back and tells Kess that the crew are also a bit put off by his curt and oft-times rude behavior. And after a short discussion, Kess leaves the captain with something to think about, that the doctor might treat people with more respect if the same respect was offered him in return. Back on the bridge, Harry is hard at work trying to decipher and to decode the incoming transmission from the wormhole. They are able to make out that they are in fact communicating with a Romulan ship whose captain bluntly accuses them of being Federation spies, lying about their predicament of being trapped in the Delta Quadrant. Janeway orders Kim to keep trying to break through to the Romulan captain because too much is at stake here. In sickbay, Captain Janeway meets with the doctor after being persuaded by Kess to do so earlier. She soon realizes that the doctor, much as Kess described, only wishes to be treated with dignity, respect, and to have his program turned off when crew members are done with his services. Janeway realizes that he is responsible now for so much more than just the treating of mere medical instances and offers him the opportunity to at least have the ownership over the activation of his own program and a promise to hear more of what the doctor needs to be a more accepted member of the crew. Meanwhile, Harry has been able to establish a stable two-way signal with the Romulan ship, piping it into the captain's quarters even if it rouses her from sleep. The Romulan captain believes Janeway's explanation, even if bewildered by this impossibility. She assures the Romulan that they are no threat to him or the Empire and are just trying to find a way home, or perhaps for the Romulan captain to pass on personal messages from Voyager's crew. The Romulan captain believes that visual communications should be established to further their discussion. Act 3. After teching the tech, visual comms are established and the Romulan captain appears on screen. He's bewildered by Voyager's design and admits that he's been on assignment for a while and has not been updated to the latest in Romulan intelligence. 
Janeway appeals to his scientific nature and being a father, who, by his own admission, has not been home for the birth of his daughter, who will be two years old when he finally returns from duty. Janeway's plea regarding Voyager being stranded in the Delta Quadrant, her crew being cut off from their loved ones, and her connection to the Romulan's paternal instincts make giant strides in their relationship as he agrees to help her ferry messages through the wormhole and deliver them to the Romulan Senate, who will then decide their fate. But it's the best he can do for now. In Janeway's ready room, Bellana barges in with news that can't wait. She believes she may have found a way to actually use the subspace carrier wave as a means to piggyback a transporter signal. In other words, the possibility of beaming people through the wormhole. The news of this spreads quickly throughout the ship, except for sickbay, when Kess arrives to tell the doctor of this new development. He laments that he would not be able to be separated from the ship's system, to which Kess kisses him on the cheek, thanking him for everything he's done for her. With the successful beaming of a test cylinder to the Romulan ship, with slight modifications to the phase variance during the beaming process, both Janeway and the Romulan captain agree to a live test post-haste. He volunteers himself for security reasons, and after materializing on Voyager, also, after a slight adjustments to his phase variances during the beaming process, Captain Janeway, along with Chakotay, Tuvok, Balana, and Harry, welcome him to Voyager and the Delta Quadrant. Act 4 even though the Romulan captain is alive and well and has survived the beaming process through the piggybacked carrier wave, Tuvok reveals to all in the transporter room that something is amiss as he asks the captain the current year to which he answers 2351, which shocks all in the transporter room as they are currently in the Delta Quadrant and in the year 2371. The Romulan captain has in fact been pulled through space and time from 20 years in Voyager's past. In the conference room, Harry is devastated and is willing to risk the return home, even if it means traveling 20 years into the past. But both Captain Janeway and Chakotay voice their concerns regarding how that would pollute the timeline in so many unanticipated ways. Even the Romulan captain, who has now introduced himself as Telek Remor of the Romulan Astrophysical Academy, offers to honor Janeway's original request to inform Starfleet as to what happened to them through the collection of personal messages from Voyager's crew. Telek only asks that if they do make it home during his lifetime, that they will visit him sometime in the future when he is an old man. After transporting Telek back to his ship, Tuvok delivers the grim news he's discovered about a Romulan named Telek Ramor, a scientist who died in 2367, four years before Voyager was pulled into the Delta Quadrant by the caretaker. And perhaps the crew's messages were never delivered at all, or that Telek had instructions for someone to carry on his promise. Accepting that there is no way to know, Janeway orders her crew to press on. In sickbay, after treating Lieutenant Baxter for yet another workout-related injury, the doctor makes it perfectly clear that he is a member of the crew, a valued one at that, who deserves respect from those who which he is responsible. Oh, and one last thing. He would like a name. The End. Nicely done, Norman. Thank you. Nice and uh, nice and tight. Dwight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so I, I do like uh, that there's so much right at the beginning here, and, and they, they get us right into the story, what's happening, what people's state of minds are. And I, I love how Janeway says in the VO, you know, we're looking for anomalies that help, help us get home. And there's something that is just so beautifully vague about that that i have to love it Mm -hmm. it's just like we're looking for anomalies okay 
Like, literally every story starts with an anomaly, pretty much. And that anomaly could mean something that could uh, crush a starship, destroy it, and uh, completely take you off path. Could get you home, but we don't know, because it's an anomaly. An anomaly could mean anything. Little column A, little column B. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she does point out, though, that there is a one in four chance of going home. Okay, I'm glad you brought this up because okay. I'm going to I'm going to expound upon this later. But okay, so you have kind of like the optimistic explorer that that Janeway is, right? Twenty five percent, you know, one in yeah. four chance. But then Tuvok starts it out with, well, there's seventy five percent chance that it's nothing. Yeah, like <laughs> or or it takes you to someplace else. Yeah, so I yeah. like there's like. Kind of like a, a Kirk and Spock or a Bones and Spock type of flavor to that, right? You know, you, oh, have, yeah. you have, you know, Tuvok being kind of like the logical, you know, kind of like leaning towards pessimism. But then you have like the eternal optimist that has the odds completely stacked against them, but still wants to press forward. Yeah. And, and good for her being like that. Although I, I would think that even if you do come across a wormhole or you come across an anomaly that is a wormhole, that is a thing that will take you to another part of the galaxy, how do you know it's just going to take you to another part of the galaxy? The universe is a big place. Mm-hmm. That wormhole could take you to any place other than just another quadrant in your particular galaxy. So, right. you know, he, he may he may be even very optimistic saying it's a 25% chance, you know? <laughs> but, but hey, look, Janeway is optimistic later as well. I'd rather assume that Kim, you know, that he's going to be successful. That, yeah. That's, it, you know, we'll, we'll get to that scene as well. But, you know, she, she does it again. Good for her. I like Tom saying, hey, look, my boy Harry, he's going to be famous someday. Just name that wormhole after him if it works. <laughs> I think that was, it was cute. And I like the wormhole effect. It... It reminds me of the very first time I saw the wormhole in the motion picture. That was super cool. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. But, you know, sadly, we don't know at the end of this episode if they named that wormhole after Harry Kim. Or if there was an asteroid at the very, 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 very end of it. You know, that could be fire. Photon torpedoes at (laughs) away. (laughs) (laughs) You're all welcome because you all have that airwig now, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. I, I love doing the timestamp thing. So yeah. seven minutes in, mm-hmm. when the doctor is quizzing Kess, you can see the reverse shot of Lieutenant Baxter's neck. You can see the officer pips. So mm. I have a big issue with these officers in Starfleet that go against the nature of being a Starfleet officer so easily. And in this scene, he's like, well, is this guy going to be able to do anything? I mean, what is he, just a hologram? I'm like, dude, you've seen alien life forms. Mm-hmm. Why the leap of judgment here? I don't get it. Right. Hey, you know who agrees with you is Kess. Mm. And, uh, and I think we're going to talk about that yeah. for sure. I do love the introduction of the Romulan captain before we have a name, before we have a face, that it, it is this very Cold War attitude that he has. And like oh, yeah. no answer is a good answer for him because he immediately sees subterfuge and whatever. It is. And it just fits right in with Trek lore. It's, you know, especially when things are laid out later, but we know what time frame he's coming home. And I really appreciate the concern in Janeway's voice when she tries to verify her identity. Like, you feel the frustration. You can feel everything that's going through her head. Uh, these moments that are just essentially on set, an actor talking to no one. Mm-hmm but you can actually buy the moment, those are really strong. Yeah, there's a a, a fine line between begging 
and maintaining like one's composure because there you have really no alternative, but you don't mm-hmm. also want to show weakness at the same time to a Romulan. Yeah. That was a really wonderful bit of acting. I mean, the entire episode is, really. Speaking of which, I really like the scene with Balana and Harry because it goes all the way back to Caretaker where they were at odds. <laughs> and then she kind of uses Starfleet here a little bit more endearingly when she asks Harry about, you know, who do you have at home? And then she kind of yeah. confesses about how she really doesn't have anyone at home. I thought that was interesting and, you know, a, a, you know, a little emotional there, you know, for, yeah. for both characters. Okay, so mm-hmm. here's the thing. First of all, I love the Mercedes leather bucket seat screen thing that whatever that you know jane was using i love that um yeah. with the matching cup holders and you know yeah but yeah. why is chakotay always out of his xo seat this entire episode staring at like tom's console when he should be staring at the captain's leather interior bucket seat oh, cup holder console you know, yeah yeah that's interesting right think about on the enterprise pretty much everybody is in place at all times yeah you know yeah I mean, just yeah. just think if she said, you know, brace for impact, he would have been dead. <laughs> you should have learned from the old guy. Yeah, I but he wasn't there. So, yeah, too bad. Speaking of great acting, uh, having Kate and, and Bob Picardo in that scene where she's asking the doctor, like, what he needs, uh, a scene that we haven't really seen yet with these two actors, I think that just it just lends towards just some really wonderful moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think my favorite scene so far is, it's when uh, they piped in the Romulan uh, commander's, you know, his uh, audio into her ready room or her bedroom uh, mm-hmm. when she's asleep. And she's so vulnerable in that because her hair is down. Yeah. She's wearing her nightgown. She's kind of like, it's like, you know, Javert, like pleading to the stars, like the only person that can yeah. hear her that makes sense out of this are the stars themselves. Yeah. And she's wonderfully lit. It's just such a delicate moment where a lot of things are like at a knife's edge. It's such a good scene, and and the word there is intimate. That mm-hmm. this whole episode has moments of intimacy that are great, and will I'm sure that that'll be in the summary too. But yeah, that uh, choosing to place that scene there, I thought was brilliant. I don't know if it was like that in the script originally, but they made the right decision by having it there. And also want to point out, this is the first time we've really gotten a chance to look around her quarters mm. a little. And it's the details that we always remember that show personalities of the crew. I mean, we all remember Picard's ready room with his you know, Shakespeare book and with Livingston there. And now we get to see what's in Janeway's life. Uh, there's some plants. Uh, there's some artistic glassware. There's some tasteful modern art, and she's got a gramophone. So <laughs> why? I, I don't know. I, I hope that in seven years of Voyager, somebody plays the gramophone. Not going to hold my breath, but I can still hope for it. And, you know, I thought it was interesting to see Cass excited about the prospect of the whole ship returning to the Alpha Quadrant if they can all beam out through the wormhole. You know, at this point, she and Neelix have only been a few weeks from where they were. You know, right. and and they have a wealth of knowledge to share with their people in the Delta Quadrant. So I wonder, would they be so ready to stay? It's like, it's one thing if you say, yeah, we're going to hop on the ship. And then even a few months later, they could say, you know what? We're going to take our shuttle and just head the other way. <laughs> we'll go back to more familiar territory. Uh, but now she's just essentially speaking for both of them. Like, yeah, cool. We're all going back to the Alpha Quadrant. Great. Guess we'll carve out a new life there. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk about his, uh, Ethan's or Neelix's kind of like his um, absence in this episode, mm-hmm. probably a little bit later, because 
yeah, she is really representing the couple. Yeah. But at the same time, though, she's like, well, she's looking at a chance for to better her life. I really did get a little emotional when Janeway looked at that picture, the photo of Mark and Molly. I'm like, yeah. this is the reason why we're here in this episode. This is the reason why I think that she can appeal to Talek Ramor because of that story that he told later on about his daughter and not him not being there for her birth. And then yeah. not being there uh, for, again, another year and a year and a half because he's still on duty. Like, by the time this yeah. man sees his daughter, she'll already be yeah. two or a little bit over two years older. Uh, this is about, you know, making those, l- losing the opportunity to get those moments back. All right. Yeah. So I thought yeah. that was really, really just a nice yeah. touch. I do know that there's so much to say about the doctor in this episode, but it was an interesting revealing moment when he's talking to Cass that he would prefer to be deactivated if and when the crew are gone, assuming that they can get through the wormhole, assuming that they can beam out. It's like, make sure I'm deactivated when you leave. That, that There's something really heartbreaking about that. But, you know, we'll get to more of the uh, the inherent tragedy of the Doctor <laughs> a little you know, later. We might have yeah. to do the home game pad count now in Voyager because, again, <laughs> so many pads. Oh, my God. Yes, yes. Like every medical journal. <laughs> yeah, here's Everything. one. Here's one on Burns. Here's one on Alien This. Here's one on, you know, First Aid. Here's one on Anatomy. And like, yeah, you know, it, it's just strange extrapolating that on the technology that we have today, knowing that, like, say, one iPad Pro can basically carry, like, the Library of Alexandria in it. So. Oh, right. Right. Pretty much. The kiss, though, uh, kissing the doctor and thanking him profusely. Mm. No one's really gone anywhere by this time. Like, no one's been transported. Like, no person has left the ship via the subspace carrier wave. A little premature? A little too mm. much, like, invented drama there? Yeah. I mean, a, a little bit. It, it, it is... I, I mean, look, I, I do like the way that... And I know that I, I had some complaints about this before, about making Kess very special and not really understanding her powers of intuition and you know telepathic abilities but but there is something very special about her in the more pragmatic sense that she is this very caring soul and she is the one who has reached out to the doctor and i think that moment is a blend of the optimism about going home her sympathy about him saying you know just deactivate me which uh, again tragic Mm -hmm. and everything that she felt about him up until this point you know and all the negative pushback that he's gotten from the rest of the crew so is it maybe a bit much like in in real real life would that happen maybe not uh it is a little manufactured but i can see where the motivations could be justified yeah to get it there, you know? Yeah. I will say, you know, speaking of beaming through the wormhole, I love that idea of the test cylinder. I think it's so cool. And I was watching it fade in and out of existence on the other end. And all I mm-hmm. think is Enterprise, what we got back didn't live long, fortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I do I do think that that test cylinder, apparently this prop was very difficult. And, you know, all the way from Rick Berman down, everybody had a comment on it because, you know, Everybody's an art director. I heard the uh, the name of that prop was called the Sonak. Is that true? Just kidding. was it? <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> no, no, that's good. That's yeah. good. Very good. Mm-hmm. But no, I, it almost looked like a baby version of the most important prop in the universe. And and anybody who's paid attention to Mission Log or Airplane or The Last Starfighter mm-hmm. or any number, you know what the most important prop in the universe is. This looks like something that it would have made by 
the most important prop in the universe. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, and by the way, I'm glad that we got a real world date, 2371. That's rare in Star Trek. I know that it's fun to just have the star dates be kind of nebulous, uh, but it's cool to actually pin a date on something. Well, it pings back to the, the, the revelation that you know, we uh, we saw in uh, when the captain said, you know, I'm from 20, you know, 2351. 20, Everyone's mm-hmm. like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. OK, so you, you can put that into like real world terms. You know, when you can yeah. do the addition and subtraction of that, I thought was really smart. Yep. Also, it, it gives more credibility, emotional uh, impact when Tuvok said that this man died in 2367. Again, do the math. Four years before mm-hmm. they were pulled by the caretaker into the Delta Quadrant. So having these specific touch points, these specific dates, allow you to just kind of like make sense of the schematic of like all of this time travel. Uh, yeah. Where you're like, oh, he came from there. Now he's here. Then he went back. But literally 30 seconds ago, he was alive. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's That's nuts. It's nuts. It's creepy. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's played well. Do we still, though, have a conundrum at the end of the episode? Because, look, we can assume that the messages never went through. We can assume that he died and didn't send any of the messages. Mm-hmm. Although, look, you know, he, he could have had a timer or something. I think that might have been a good idea. Um, but uh, I, I still wonder, though, he does say at a certain point that he contacted the Romulan Senate. So mm-hmm. if Telic told the Romulan Senate about Voyager 20 years in the past, then they probably have a whole team trying to figure out things about that ship since that time. I mean, I, I, I think they, they've probably dispatched a whole Romulan spy ring to Starfleet to go, ooh, there, there's going to be something really important about Voyager about 20 years from now. We better find out what they're doing. I mean, can you imagine if it played out the same way it played out at the end of Back to the Future 2, where all of a sudden, like, somebody shows up from Romulan Western Union with the letters exactly yes well maybe they'll get that when they finally get home oh look we got these messages timed at the wrong time now get this you tell telegramor that i ain't taking no jive from no romulan western union messenger We'll get right back to Eye of the Needle. But first, a word from this week's sponsors. Hey, um, Norman, I got a question for you. Trade coffee. What coffee did they send you? What did you get? And uh, what did you like? Okay, so the favorite of the three Mm -hmm. that I've tried comes from Alma Family Farms. And the here's a little bit of the description. Extra dark roast, because I love dark coffee. Mm Mm-hmm. The flavor notes are double chocolate cake, berry compote, and burnt marshmallow. Nice. Okay. Mm, I'm on board with all of that. Yeah. The farm is Finca Teratillo from the Copan Honduras region at 1,000 meters. Interesting. These are the statistics that you get on the label of the coffee that you get from Trade Coffee. I love that. So let me ask you this then. Were you surprised? by what you got where you uh, when you took the test or you took the quiz or they call it a test like like they're grading you like no you take the quiz to figure out what it is that you like were you surprised then by what you ended up with 
Oh, I mean, when I cracked open the bag, there's nothing better in the world than cracking open a fresh bag of coffee. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it, that, right? That loves coffee. That is absolutely and yes, true. I was completely surprised. It was the the grind was just beautiful. Like the freshness was there, uh, the flavor rarely ever like matches like the aroma. But this case, yeah, they worked it such the beautifully in concert with each other. What an experience! Fantastic coffee. See, so that's what you love. That's what I love. That is why Trade Coffee is awesome because you get to take the quiz. They figure out what flavors you like, what you're interested in. If you're a coffee expert or if you're kind of a novice but enthusiast like myself, they figure out the coffee that is right for you. And they get to broaden your palate a little bit at the same time. Indeed. Now, Trade Coffee connects customers to the freshest and best tasting coffee they've ever made at home by partnering with the country's best craft roasters. These are independent businesses from big cities and small towns. Trade customers are truly impactful for these independent roasters, often being the largest source of new growth for them. Now, I'm no expert. Uh, Maybe you out there aren't experts, but you know one thing. You know you love fresh coffee. And this coffee is tasted by experts. Trade Coffee's team actually taste tests thousands of coffees to keep 450 different kinds live and ready to ship every day. And there's no one perfect coffee But there's a perfect coffee for you. Uh That's what the quiz is for. (laughs) Yep. Now, Trade has their first match guarantee. They're so confident they'll match you with the right coffee the first time that if they don't, they'll take your feedback and an actual coffee expert will work with you to send you a brand new bag for free. That is serious commitment and customer service. All right. So like Norman just said, you don't have to be a coffee snob. You don't have to be a coffee expert. You just know what you like. And that's the beauty of it is that Trade Coffee's real coffee experts taste everything. They've tried out so many, so many different brands of coffee, so many different kinds. They've narrowed it down to that 450 and they know what to recommend that fits you. Because look, the truth is what I like, what you like could be totally different things. And uh, you will like a selection of specific coffees that are different from anyone else's taste. So just answer a couple of questions and you'll get your own personalized variety of coffees delivered fresh to you as often as you like. No gimmicks. Right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash mission log. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free. And you don't even need to go into a nebula to get it. Get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash mission log and let Trade find you a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash mission log for $30 off. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack, which is a tool that we use all the time, so know all about it. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but you don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point that they become completely unusable for your team. Instead of frustrating your employees, don't do that. Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. So here's how you can find all about that. You can visit collide.com slash mission log to sign up today. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. Enter your email when prompted to receive your free Collide gift bundle after trial activation. 
At Collide, we know end users are IT admins' most significant, untapped resources and the key to solving the most challenging to fix security issues, including a few of the fan favorites, instructing <laughs> developers to set passphrases on encrypted SSH keys. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely. My personal favorite. Do that mm-hmm. yeah. exactly, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. That's terrible. Ooh, that's no good. You don't nobody want that. wants that. No, nobody does. Nobody does. So these are just some of the many use cases not solved by locking down devices. You can try Collide with all of its features on an unlimited number of devices for free for 14 days. They don't even need a credit card. Try it out at collide.com slash mission log. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash mission log. All right, Norman, I feel like there's a couple of uh, major ideas to talk through in this episode. But let's let's just start out with the big one, like, like right away, because we've mentioned before the times that Kess and others have treated the doctor as a being which is mm-hmm. very cool, Mo- mostly Kess, primarily Kess. And by the way, I love seeing that, like I said, we're only a few episodes into the series so far, but that seems to be a recurring theme that the the scripts are trying to figure out who is this entity that is the EMH and how do people relate to them. So it's cool to see that baked into the concept of Voyager early on. And it, it's nice to see the opposite of that which feels initially very relatable like a very human reaction this is technology i don't understand it's not part of my daily life therefore i'm a bit skeptical and don't know how to interact with it you know it's this idea of someone who thinks of the emh as just a hypo spray which he says tragically tragically it's painful right Mm -hmm. And, and i love the language around figuring him out and and I love how Cass approaches the captain and asks if she would be concerned about any member of the crew whose needs aren't being met. Would you want to know about it? I this is like office politics one oh one. She is really? handling yeah. handling this interaction perfectly. And then Cass And says, like a counselor. And yes, yes, perfect. Right? Yeah. And, and I love that Cass says he's alive, to which Janeway just immediately says, No, he's not. And she says, because he's a hologram, he doesn't need to be treated with respect or any consideration at all. And the moment of realization on Janeway's face, absolutely great. I, I love it because, again, that's all you need. That is the kind of efficiency that I like to see in a script. You don't need to hear another comment from Janeway. You need to see her process that. And it's a fantastic moment. I think this is probably one of the most significant scenes in the episode. I actually borrowed that exact same quote, and I'm going to actually pull a couple other lines from it, which leads into a previous segment that we did um, an episode or two ago where we brought up our our reading of Measure of a Man. Yes. When we were talking about uh, how Starfleet uh, and uh, their policy towards life forms sentient life the understanding uh, thereof at all you know when it comes to what uh, lieutenant or commander maddox said about data mm. mm-hmm. when kess says he's self-aware he's communicative he has the ability to learn janeway says 
because he's been programmed to do that. Well, so have we. Yeah, yes. We as human beings have been programmed to learn and adapt and absorb information in a very similar biochemical way. Norman, we took the same damn note <laughs> because that is, uh, we are all pro- quote unquote programmed to do that. That is our biological imperative. That is, you know, other than reproduction, that is what our brains do. We, exactly. we take in information and we analyze it and synthesize it. And that is the process of our brains. I love that. Just laying it out like that. Yeah. Now, Let's take a look at it from another similar standpoint, another standpoint that you and I have and have taken issue with, with Starfleet officers like Maddox, like Baxter. Mm -hmm. And I want to go all the way back to another example of where Data actually had to overcome this prejudice and this bias. And this comes from Redemption Part 2, going all the way back to TNG when he had that interaction with the first officer of his newly assigned ship. When he was assigned to uh, by Picard to take over the Sutherland. Now you mm-hmm. had Commander Christopher Hobson, you know, and his mm-hmm. attitude towards Data, saying that I would like to apply for a transfer because "quote unquote" androids aren't meant for certain assignments. Yeah, and Data's like yeah. request denied. Why is it that in Starfleet still we have this bias and prejudice? against other life forms going all the way back to lieutenant styles going all the way back to balance of terror where styles had complete prejudice against spock an officer a vulcan an ally of the federation that he knows is loyal but just because he looks like a romulan he said well you know what i have a problem with you yeah. you're a starfleet officer hasn't that been trained out of you yet or am i expecting well, too much from this well, well uh, here's the question then. Is it that sort of last acceptable prejudice that if it's a naturally occurring biological entity, we're supposed to, when I say we, I'm speaking for Starfleet here, you know, uh, we're supposed to approach them with curiosity and interest and a respect for life. But when it comes to artificial or manufactured intelligence, suddenly we're supposed to treat that with skepticism and fear. I mean, uh, I don't know how quickly word got around about, uh, you know, Kirk dealing with Nomad or fast forward a few years and here's V'ger coming to eat Earth, you know, purely for the pursuit of information because it doesn't understand the sort of emotional complexity there as well. It's just looking for information to absorb. So, you know, I I guess at the basest sense, you could say, well, there might be a bit of fear built in to manufactured intelligence, manufactured life forms, because there have been bad experiences. But it, here's what I think is interesting about how the Doctor fits into the overall Star Trek history of this character, of this idea of the Doctor. That role has always been played by somebody who is very human, very empathetic, who has this special relationship to all the surrounding characters. McCoy wore his emotions on his sleeve. And so did Pulaski, for that matter, when you get into season two of TNG. Uh, Go back to Crusher. You know, Dr. Crusher literally on board with her son. So there is an emotional bond there to somebody who is part of the crew. Even Bashir, with many faults, learned to let his guard down and be more human. 
so we have this classic Star Trek paradigm of, you know, the outsider who wants to be more than he is, see Spock or Data. But now you take that paradigm, you take that idea and thrust it into a role that requires sensitivity and humanity beyond what those other characters have always demanded. So I also, as a building up to a point here, I also love how Star Trek puts medical technology in a context with a personal human touch. And I'm using human to be personal, you know. Go back to that first scene with the Kess and Doctor and uh, Baxter. The Doctor is asking her to come up with possible diagnoses, even while he's standing there holding a tricorder that will give an instant accurate reading. And I think Star Trek does this, maybe for better or for worse, because this might go back to your question about how do we treat manufactured intelligence. Star Trek shows this technology, but especially in a medical environment, that just has to be a supplemental tool to the emotional, uh, uh, sympathetic being that is there holding that tool. So I wonder, Norman, to, to your point earlier, like, is this a thing that is this last leap of prejudice where it just has to do with manufactured beings, artificial intelligence, manufactured intelligence, or is it something that is hypersensitive because it is a medical context? How would you feel going into your doctor's office and you just happen to get there on the day that they replace maybe one of the nurses or somebody with an Android before you see the doctor? Would you feel, you know, would, would your ability to accept a new life form suddenly have a little bit of pushback when you're not being treated by a person that you feel like can understand you? I think that's an excellent point. And I think that I think that what I need to to filter that through and, and maybe, you know, put into perspective of, of what I'm expecting uh, for these other characters to react from is the Starfleet operative of accepting strange new worlds and new life forms and seeking out new civilizations. That's their mm-hmm. mission. Yeah. Right. You know, this, this is the reason why they're in Starfleet because they want to be able to pursue those interests because that's where the belief humanity is supposed to be or both supposed to go or supposed to encounter. So I don't understand like why are there are all these consistent examples throughout the course of the series of humanity being lesser than the Star Trek humanity that we're supposed to aspire to. It doesn't make any sense to me. Is it? Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. Like, you know, Data was welcomed and accepted by his crew, but there was this pushback from the outside. You know, if they met people, obviously Bruce Maddox being the most extreme example of that. Uh, But even Maddox was fueled by this sort of misplaced curiosity, definitely a misplaced sense of uh, ownership versus autonomy. But but he wasn't driven necessarily by evil or by any sort of hatred of data. It was just sort of this um, uh, uh, sort of excusing data from the, the niceties that you would offer other beings, you know, but clearly right. the crew accepted and loved data for who he was and what he what he brought there. So Maybe it just takes time, but again, maybe it is this the the sort of last vestige of prejudice that is going to be harder to get over, 
even after they've had all these opportunities to get over it with other life forms. Is it something so relatable as to people rejecting or, you know, becoming incensed when automated technology steals their jobs? Mm. Like robotics, like they're, you know, the... Yeah, the reaction of the auto workers unions when robotics in the 1980s started mm-hmm. to like automate, you know, a lot of kind of like the base functions of automated services for manufacturing. I mean, you know, movies were made, an entire series of TV was made about this gung ho. You know, mm-hmm. they, they used comedy as a way to actually explore that. But yes, there were, there were people that were genuinely put at risk. Their lifestyles were put at risk, their families, their futures, because robots were replacing their ability to work. So maybe this is another way to look at it. Instead of it being a pushback against a life form, it is the sort of age-old pushback against technology. There was pushback against the printing press. There, you know, there was pushback against computers, as you just mentioned, you know, pushback against robotics taking over sometimes very dangerous jobs that honestly human beings should not always be a part of. But Star Trek always has this really strange and interesting relationship with technology where the technology sometimes is the enemy in star trek or technology used too much too far is the enemy so it always takes uh, it's sort of like metropolis you know but between mm-hmm. the uh the head and the hand there must be a moderator and the moderator is the heart and i feel like star trek very often puts that human element as the heart that is able to mediate and say well okay you have these technologies available to you you can accomplish incredible things with those technologies it manifests in the real world but you have to temper that with some sort of understanding and empathy to actually be uh, useful or good at it i want to move along here and ask a, a related but kind of maybe difficult maybe it's not so difficult if we talk it out question about the doctor mm-hmm. the doctor wants the ability to activate or deactivate himself and and janeway offers that to him but why Okay, so if the doctor is deactivated, then he's still extant as however many ones and zeros are in Voyager's medical computer. He would still have to be alive, quote, you know, finger quote, alive or aware in some capacity in order to decide when or why to activate himself. So the computer is basically running regardless and using energy to do so, I can understand shutting down from time to time. I do that to my computer. That's just a good habit. Everybody shut down your computer at some point. But specifically for the EMH, does it really matter? <laughs> it's just an energy resource at that point. And I think that this is probably where uh, we're, we're, we're coming to that crossroads of how much programming has... I mean, am I allowed to say it? Am I allowed to say Zimmerman? We have... <laughs> we, we've said the name. We, we have said, said the, the name, name before, yeah, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. And we know that he was programmed by Starfleet's finest yeah. medical you know, technicians and scientists. So what if that personality is bleeding through? What if there is an algorithm in there that is a personality? What if there's something in there that's saying that, you know what? This is... It's the, it's the stepping stone to a, a certain just level of autonomy over his self you know mm-hmm. his 
you know, his programming. I understand what you're saying. It's like, you know, why do you need to turn off a computer, you know, or why does the computer need to turn off itself? It's basically like after we're done recording here, hey, uh, Mac, turn yourself off, will you? And, and if right? it's off, it's off. Mm-hmm. So off wouldn't mean then I can decide that I want to go work on that other project or I can decide I want to go read a technical manual or a medical manual because – Again, it's like that question that I brought up before. Why is the doctor using a computer interface? He is the computer. <laughs> so yeah. So and you're actually slowing yourself down by sitting there at a desk and reading something on a terminal. But I think that in this episode, they they reference how you know how irate he is or how irritated he is when people leave his program on and don't give him at least the courtesy of turning him off it's it's being treated with the respect and dignity of being an actual person yeah. now is that because he is learning and he is his algorithm that personality from whoever programmed him or those who did is bleeding through hmm. Maybe that's what we're, we are going to find out, or maybe this is where the story is leading us. But I think that it's just because he's not being treated or his program is not being treated with the level of respect that he believes it should be treated is where kind of like this gray area is of, well, he's just a computer. He's just a program. But is he? Uh, well, <laughs> that that is going to remain one of the central mysteries of this series the, the longer we go. Here's another interesting thing that I thought about, John. What just comes to the agency of being able to turn oneself on and turn oneself off. The character that hasn't been able to do that at all, like barge into a situation or kind of like, you know, joke when things are serious or mansplain Kess in such a way is Neelix. Yeah. Or Talaxian's Blaine Kess, I should say. Talaxian's <laughs> Neelix. Yes. Yeah. This episode was so good and so tight and so powerful and so all of the above. Mm-hmm. That, in many ways, I didn't miss Neelix. Now, I know I'm not disparaging Ethan at all. I think that Ethan has brought such an incredible presence with Neelix for whatever mileage may vary for you out there in the audience. But Neelix wasn't in any scene or referenced once in this episode, not even by Kess. Has yeah. that changed the tone of this episode to something that that elevates this episode in Voyager's run because he's not in it? I hate to ask the question, but it's pretty obvious. Huh. Okay. You know, it, it, it's interesting. And I wonder if I – I didn't miss Neelix in this episode, but I also – it's weird. I didn't miss him, but I also didn't feel like he was missing if that makes any sense at all. Because I felt like just by Kess being there, I understood the relationship between her and Neelix because we already established that. So I feel like, okay, we're just following her part of the story right now. All those times that we don't see Kess on screen, she's probably talking to Neelix about what she learned that day and the, you know, with, from the emergency medical hologram and, uh, Maybe Neelix was still expressing some kind of jealousy. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? But we didn't need we didn't need any comedy to punctuate things here. And even with the doctor, like e- even though Robert Picardo plays comedy extremely well, whether it's 
over the top and obvious or very subtle and and kind of abrasive comedy. He plays all over the comedy spectrum extremely well. I didn't feel like we were missing anything comedic from this episode either. So did I miss Neelix? No, I think any more comedy outburst from him would have felt really out of place the way I felt it was uh, last week. <laughs> so um, it was just kind of like even a cameo appearance, like he served food to, uh, you know, to like more, or he brought, maybe he brought, Kess and uh, Janeway their lunch when they were having that meeting. That's just something, anything. Yeah, yeah. It's just weird that the entire episode doesn't have a trace of him. And I didn't mind. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, there there was a scene, you know, I talked about the script being restructured uh, when they changed mm-hmm. the act format. There was a kitchen scene at some point that just never got shot never made it but but then e- even so if you had it if you had cut it would you have missed it and i don't think you would i think this one kind of works on its own yeah so i'm going to be interested to see like moving forward when a certain character or cast member isn't in the episode at all does that totally change the episode because of what that character really brings to an episode or does it not matter because again I have nothing against Ethan. I think that everything he's brought to Voyager so far has been fabulous. Mm. And I just didn't miss it this time around. Hey, look, I think the writers are figuring out um, where those certain elements are needed as a seasoning to the show and when they're not, when to just sort of pull back a little bit. But that's good. That shows a confidence in the production and the characters that you have. What exactly is Harry going to do for 20 years before showing up on his parents' doorstep in his mid-40s? Please leave your ideas in the comments. We've done it, John. We are here. We're here at the end of the episode. We have threaded the eye of the needle. I'm sorry. I really had to force that joke in, but you know what I mean. You know, yeah. we it was a very strong episode. It was powerful, it was impactful, it was memorable. You can tell by uh, our discussion points and even in some of our observations that there's a lot here in this episode, even being midway almost to um or almost to the midway point, I should say, of Voyager season 1. I think that John and I are going to be somewhere in the ballpark of very similar responses here for how do we feel if this episode has held up? Has it withstood the test of time? And then as we progress on into our morals, meetings, and messages, let's start with you, John. Uh, We're here talking about, did this episode hold up for you? Yeah, I mean, hey, look, at least we're not doing another time travel paradox stories. Oh, wait a minute. No, scratch that. We are. We would have another time issue it is a time travel story oh my god (laughs) no no but look look i love a good time travel story i also worry that maybe it's becoming part of the very definition of voyager for better for worse so it really just depends on the quality of the stories that we're telling and this is a quality story that we're telling it's not a story about his time displacement it is a story about the crew of the ship that we're following is it a little gilligan's island i i mean now that we're stranded anytime we reach 
you know, quote, home, uh, that message has to be intercepted by the wrong or least helpful people and then dismissed or destroyed either on purpose or accidentally or whatever. You know, that 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 is sort of the the challenge of having a show like Voyager set far away where the goal is one thing. It then means that every obstacle in your way has to thwart that main one thing because then you don't have a show to come back to the next week if they just if they resolve it you know like you i love that scene of janeway in her quarters talking to telek remore uh as as an acting slice you know as an actor kate mulgrew is alone and that is a very hard thing to do. You, you literally just in a, in a room with nobody to bounce off of. Maybe there's a voice coming from offstage somewhere, and then you've got a camera crew, et cetera. But you have to absolutely be committed 100% to the emotion of the moment. And she has that absolutely correct delivery of command and pathos. And it feels so personal and so real, as she does at many points in this episode. But to me, that is a standout that is hard to forget here. You know, I feel like as we have started our journey with Voyager, I've been on the fence about a few of these first efforts. Um, I feel like the pilot was really strong, not because it was the best story, but because you laid out all the pieces very nicely. And then the stories we got immediately after that, I kept saying, well, the story itself is a little forgettable. It's a little thin, but we have these strong character moments to buoy what's happening in the story. This, though, this is an example of an episode that is so simple and so focused but absolutely delivers on the emotional reality of the situation of the crew that we're following. So I don't have to be on the fence about this one. This is something that does what I love. I, I use these words over and over on Mission Log because it, these are the words that speak to me when I'm kind of judging a piece. Are the writers being efficient with their storytelling? Is there a reality and an intimacy to the drama that's unfolding? And as I said before on DS9 and sometimes before on TNG, many times those best stories are told with the utmost simplicity. Just an actor or two in a room and you let everything else gets out of the way and you just let them do their jobs. And this episode does that in many instances beautifully. So I do think it holds up quite well. Uh, how about you? After my shameless gushing, <laughs> how about you? Oh, I think the gushing is going to continue. I okay. Mean, there, there comes a time, I think, in every first season of any TV series, really, where everything just comes together. You know, the writing and the acting and the pacing, the, the production, all of the elements that go into a show they all kind of crystallize and come into focus. And mm. I think that that's this episode because it balances so many wonderful narrative moments. But at the same time, though, the pacing is very good. The character beats are very well earned. The structure is very strong. You never feel like it's lingering anywhere at any one point in time. And you can just feel that the, the elements are dialed in. The actors know who their characters are, their motivations, etc., I mean, that really is at play. John, I completely agree with that scene with Kate uh, mm -hmm. talking to the disembodied voice of Telek Ramor, uh, pleading 
uh, for his help. But at the same time, though, not putting herself in such a vulnerable situation where she can't back out of uh, any concessions that she makes. Yeah. She knows that. And I think that, uh, to her credit, Kate Mulgrew knew that from pretty much like Caretaker, you know, how, how Janeway operates under these circumstances. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make a really wild prediction here. Okay. I loved this episode so much that I'm going to put this right now at my top 10 of all of Voyager. Wow. Wow. Okay. Be- because I feel that it was so emotionally powerful, mm-hmm. it feels so seasoned as an episode. Casting Von Armstrong as Telek Ramor was brilliant. Mm. Yep. You know, and that's the type of that's the type of character that will always be lingering in a lasting memory of why this episode is so good. Because you brought this guest star in that just elevates the quality of the the, the production in itself. And then he was sympathetic. Also, as the guest character, as an enemy to the Federation, but also someone that we can relate to in terms of understanding what he was willing to do and then understanding that he wasn't able to fulfill a promise. Mm -hmm. It's very human, right, for an alien character. So I love episodes that really pull the emotional weight of, you know, punch above its weight moments. And that Mm -hmm. was... That was when Tuvok delivered that line. When I'm hit with a lot of tear jerkiness type of reactions, like simultaneously or successively throughout the course of an episode, that's when I said, that's it. That's the time. That's the moment. This is it. This it all comes together. That was this episode for me. That's why it's going to withstand the test of time. All right. I, I think yeah. that's very fair. Now, I, as far as morals, meanings, messages, what do we learn from the episode? I, I think this is one of those where it's a sort of an episode with central feelings in it. It, it isn't necessarily preaching to the audience to do anything, but there is a uh, there is a mood here and there is an idea that is central. And we've talked many times on Mission Log before about how friends are the family that you choose. And many of the characters that we've come to know and love on Star Trek in general are orphans in one way or another. And literally everyone on Voyager is cut off from their friends and family back home. They are all orphans in this together. They all have to find ways to get along and to work, but also have meaningful personal connections. And it is such a pleasure to watch that gel over the first few episodes of the series. I feel like, you know, as strong as this might be for you, Norman, looking at the long term, I'm glad that we got an episode like this so early in the run. Oh, agreed. you know, absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. it, it just, it, it hones in on the emotional reality of these characters. I mean, we barely talked about uh, Harry Kim, but, but I, I thought, he had such strong moments just even with the brevity that he was on screen just knowing this is a kid he's 22 years old in Mm -hmm. in this episode and he's concerned about his family and he even he raises the question that probably a lot of other people on that ship would have felt in the reality of the situation no seriously 20 years so what what if we do go back home because i have a home to go back to even if it's 20 years, you know? So I loved uh, hearing his voice, his reality in that. And in this episode, it's not just the living 
organic crew members, but we're also making strides in accepting the doctor as part of that family. So there is this examination of family. Harry Kim worrying about his parents, worrying about him. Belana and her non-family, except for the people on the ship and in her very recent past with the Maquis. Voyager just takes these little moments and squeezes the good stuff out of them and i wish they could sometimes let those moments sit a little bit longer but then it, it it's an action sci-fi show so sometimes you also have to move on there's also a kind of perseverance and professionalism that is very appealing in star trek overall and in this episode in particular because they are all emotionally invested in what's happening and, and yes i'm looking at you too tuvok and their excitement <laughs> is understandable, as is their disappointment. But they keep cool heads. They carry on. They're respectful of the situation. And they just move on to the next. It, it, it's really nice to see all of those things dovetail together in an episode like this. I think the neat thing about how John and I formulate our notes on Mission Log, we've said this before, Like we don't really read into each other's notes as we're, mm-hmm. as we're compiling them for, for the show. And I think that just what I'm going to say only adds to how strong this episode is, because I think that the the morals, meanings and messages, the beats, the emotional development of the characters and where they've taken us, they have led John and I down different paths. Hmm. Um, but we've all we're coming to almost kind of like the same conclusions hmm. where, where John, you know, I agree with, you know, how much of this interesting found family structure is so important to Voyager. I, I see it in exactly the same way with a few other differences that I just Mm. wanted to touch on here. Absolutely. Like family in Voyager here, like for better or for worse, however you define family, biological, like found family, as we've discussed, or otherwise, there is something that's really relatable here, you know, and how important family is to the crew. I mean, Harry's basically asking Bolana, how's your family? Here's mm-hmm. my family. Here's mm-hmm. me. How's your family? Because I want all of us to be family. Mm-hmm. Janeway's the same way, or she wouldn't make the concession that she would have made with the doctor unless she wants him to be part of the family. What's really interesting about this episode is kind of the other side of family, the side of the, the side that uh, you sometimes they address in Star Trek and sometimes they don't. Uh, for example, Picard uh, regretting that he wasn't there for his crew for the seven years uh, at the end of All Good Things. Yeah. Uh, Talek confesses to Janeway that he hasn't seen his newborn daughter and will lose two years of watching her grow up. This is the other side of family, the side that you choose duty over, right? And I like that they actually approach this in this episode because this is why Janeway and the crew are out there. You risk yourself and you separate yourself from your family because of this risk and this obligation that you place for your duty, Right, So everyone on Voyager is out there because they have the duty to Starfleet, but now they're really at, uh, testing themselves like, well, what did that duty really do for us? Yeah. I mean, we're, yeah. we're going to lose everybody by the time that we get home, if we get home. So I think that's really, really important. And we've all made a choice somewhere along the line where we've chosen duty over family. I know I have. I've said that before uh, when I discussed mm-hmm. you know, my situation with my dad when we covered The Visitor. Regrets are real. Regrets are this universal truth, whether now or in the future, especially where family's concerned. And I really love that this episode uses this overall connection to make, especially with Telic, 
And even if he's Romulan, he still shares the basic need for family. Mm -hmm. And that's why he can be reasoned with. It's wonderful to see that breakthrough when Janeway and Telic understand that the both, uh, the both of them are doing what they're doing because they want to get home to their family. Yeah. It's a beautiful moment. It's a beautiful right. realization. And when that happens, you see that he sees Janeway and her crew as just people instead of the enemy anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? In other words, going through life, just remember to try and keep your regrets down to a few. And then again, too few to mention. If you hadn't done that, I was going to. <laughs> Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, ex post facto. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. I think this may be a first for Star Trek. It's a wormhole that's literally just big enough for an actual worm. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.